Welcome to Leadership is in Session, powered by Athena Communications. This special series features some of Milwaukee's most distinguished leaders. They'll share how they overcame challenges, developed their skills, and achieved success, so you can gain insight and inspiration. And now, Leadership is in Session. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome. I am Becky Dubin-Jenkins, and I am the Vice President of Client Success for Athena Communications. We are in the studio today with our friend and colleague, Dr. Howard Fuller. Dr. Fuller, thank you for being here with us today. Oh, thanks so much. I'm very happy to be here. Well, we are just thrilled to have you. It is a privilege to be in this space with you. You may know this is a new initiative for Athena Communications. We are pairing it with another special initiative, which is the Athena podcast on the edge of equity, which you have also been a guest on. And as a quick plug for all our guests listening today, make sure to catch it. On the Edge of Equity is a new initiative of Athena. They are must-listen podcasts, if I do say so myself. They feature leaders from all over Milwaukee having critical conversations about diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and their role in that space. And you can find these podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. So Dr. Fuller, as an activist, you're an educator, you're a reformer, you have substantial expertise in so many capacities. And today we've asked you to speak about what we're calling unbought and unbothered. I think our listeners will understand why when they hear you talk about that with us. What does that mean to you? What does unbought and unbothered mean to you? Well, I actually think they mean two different things. I've always tried to make sure that I represented what I believed in, no matter what the consequences are. And I've always tried to be both honest with myself and with the people that I represent, the people that I'm talking to. And so in that sense, I've never seen myself as someone who could be bought off, someone who you could tell me what to say versus I'm going to say what I believe and then everybody has to deal with it. I have to deal with it. The people who are listening to me have to deal with it. But I always wanted people to know that whatever it is I said, it's what I believe, that it wasn't something that someone told me to talk about. or And so to me, that's what the idea of being unbought means. The reason why I said they, they can be slightly different is because I am bothered. I'm bothered by injustice. I'm bothered by the fact that we live in the richest country in the world and we still have a significant number of people who are poor. I'm bothered by the way that race operates uh, within this country. I'm bothered by the fact that we can have people who fundamentally lie about what it is that's happening in our society, approaches that we need to make to try to change it. So to that extent, I, I am bothered, but I'm never going to be bought off. So I understand the unbothered within that context that I'm not going to be bothered by criticism. I'm not going to be bothered by people who fundamentally disagree with what I believe in. Those things will never stop me from saying and doing those things that I believe in. So to that extent, I'm not bothered. 
At what point do you think in your personal life, your professional life, that you realized that about yourself? When did you realize you would not be bought? But that also, as you said, you flipped it a little bit, you're bothered. Yeah, I, I think very early on. I mean, I, I can't like go back and pinpoint and say, oh, you know, <laughs> this was the moment. Because, you know, I've been fortunate to have such a, a wide range of experiences in my lifetime and have been involved in so many different struggles, both, quote, inside the system, outside the system. I've been inside. I've been outside. I've organized against people in the system. I've had people organize against me. So I've just had this this very experience. And I, I really honestly can't say it was at that moment that I decided that I was going to be unbought and bothered <laughs> while not being bothered uh, to an extent. So I don't, I really can't tell you when that happened. I understand it's, it's, it's so innate to you that it wasn't like it became a realization. It just, it is just who you are, who you are as a person, as an educator, as an activist. As you did do all of this work. I mean, you have substantial experience doing a lot of incredible things in many different places in the country. What would you say is the most courageous thing that you have ever done? Uh, you know what? I don't really think I've been courageous. I, I mean, I know people talk about that, like, because there are things that I've done that people would say, oh, that was really courageous. But in my view, it wasn't courageous. It, it was what I was supposed to do. It was what I believed in. I mean, so when I spent 30 days with a gorilla column inside of Mozambique, I assume that some people would think that that was, you know, courageous. I mean, we were attacked by the Portuguese while I was in there. I never thought it was courageous. I mean, I've taken certain views on parent choice or certain views on issues that a significant number of people don't agree with. But honestly, I never thought that that was courageous. I just thought that that was what I was supposed to do. To me, Rosa Parks was courageous, right? Uh, to me, the people who, who, who put their life on the line for their beliefs were courageous. And I guess to a certain extent, I've done that too, but while I was doing it, I didn't view it as being courageous. And I, and, and I don't, I don't view it as being courageous now. And, and, and I think what I'm, I'm saying, maybe without saying it, I think other people have to determine when you've done something that's courageous. I don't think it's, it's, it's up to me to say, Oh, I just did something that was really courageous. Oh, no. You know, that's, I'm not built that way, right? I do what I think is the right thing to do. And then I let other people decide what label they're going to put on it one way or the other. That's fair. Although I think from the outside in, there would be so many people who would look at you and your career and your convictions and talk about how brave and bold they are. I'm wondering how you approach having conversations with people when you are so you have so much conviction about what you believe and they fundamentally disagree with you. Yeah, I think that that's a very important point. I was actually talking to someone on my way here about that exact point. And I think the way that I approach it is this. I'm getting ready to get engaged in an effort to make sure that each child in the city of Milwaukee generates the same amount of money when it comes to the choices that they make in education. So whether a child is in a private school or a charter school 
or a traditional MPS school, I think they should generate the same amount of money. That is not the case in Milwaukee. In order to try to get something done on that issue, it's going to be necessary to sit down and talk with people who have a fundamentally different worldview than I do on a whole number of things. But the question is, can we find common ground on this particular issue? We may not, but I can't, if I care about my kids, and by my kids, I mean the kids at our school, the kids in the city, they don't need me to be a purist. They need me to be someone who's going to try to get something done. And in order to get things done, I don't think you can be a purist. I think you sit down at the table with people who don't share your worldview. But the thing for you to be able to do is to be clear about why you're sitting there, what the limitations are going to be, but what the possibilities are going to be. And I can't afford to not sit down with people because they don't agree with (laughs) my views. And I also have to be respectful of the fact that there are people who have very different views about this world than I do. That doesn't make them ignorant. That doesn't make them stupid. That doesn't, doesn't make them anything <laughs> but people who have a different view. And I'm always sort of pushing back on people who, who, who call people ignorant or you're stupid because you don't, you know, share my view of the world. I try not to function that way. I try to function in a way that recognizes that in a democracy, you're going to have people with fundamentally different ways of viewing the same information. They're going to have fundamentally different ways of viewing the world. But that if I'm trying to get something done and it's necessary for me to sit down with those people, then I have to do that. It doesn't mean I'm going to change my view. It doesn't mean they're going to change their view. The question is, Is there a point where we both can agree for whatever our reasons are that this should be done? It would be fantastic if there were more of this in the world. Thank you for enlightening us on that important point. Uh, Everyone, we are polarized right now, but I I do want to go back to a very important word you said, possibility, right? What does possibility mean to you when you look in the faces of all the kids at your school? At the academy? Well, again, because of the way that I think and because (laughs) I am fundamentally a pessimist, what I try to do is to look and say, with the kids, for example, when I see them, I see myself. I grew up running these same streets that they're running. It was a totally different historical period, but I lived in Hillside Projects. I lived on 11th Street between Reservoir and Vine. I graduated from North Division High School. I played on these playgrounds. So when I look at them, I know what's possible if I can help get them the best education possible. Because when I was living in the projects, I wasn't thinking about being the superintendent of schools. I wasn't thinking about the fact that I would sit down with the president of Tanzania, Julius Nyeri, I didn't think that I would be invited to speak to an assembly of African people from all over the world. I didn't think that people would ask me to come to New Zealand to give a speech. You know, I didn't know that I would ever be the head of the Department of Health and Human Services for Milwaukee County or that I would be in a governor's cabinet. 
I wasn't ever thinking about those things, right? But what made all those things possible was the fact that I got an education. And so what I try to do when I, when I see the young people in our school, I know what is possible. Or I know that if they're serious about their education and if we can figure out a way to give them the best education possible, it opens up possibility for them in the world that would not exist if they don't get that education. And no matter what their behaviors are on a given day or what they're thinking on a given day, that doesn't define who they are. It doesn't say what they're capable of doing. And so as educators, our job is to make sure that we give them whatever it is that we have to give that will create the best possibility to change the trajectory in their lives. And so when you ask you know, how do I see possibility when I view uh, these young people? That's how I see it. So as I was preparing for this, I was reflecting on your career and your work. And really what I kept thinking about was a quote uh, from someone you would have known from Marquette, Father Naus. And Father Naus one time said, see written on the forehead of everyone you meet today, make me feel important. Why is that so key to your day-to-day work? What does that mean? Well, the, the, the reality is no one wants to feel unimportant. I mean, in fact, sometimes when a kid is going off in a classroom or in a building, sometimes it's because they're trying to say, look at me. They're trying to figure out a way for who they are to become relevant. They're trying to figure out a way to make sure that, look, I got some strengths. I'm not saying that that's always the case, but I think sometimes it it is the case. And there's very few of us who want to be considered irrelevant (laughs) or who want to be considered unimportant, right? We, we, we all like have egos. We, 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 we all have needs. We, you know, we have that as like human beings, right? And so what I try to do is to try to recognize, and it goes back to the question just asked, that the, the possibility in people, but that, but that possibility is, is also tied to their importance. And to me, what makes them important is their human beings. What makes them important is that every human being ought to have the right to try to be put into a position where they can achieve the greatest possibilities for their lives, right? It's, it's, it's like Aristotle talked about the fact that every human being should be viewed in a certain light because they're human. By virtue of being human, it gives them the right to expect to be able to rise to the highest level of their possibilities. And, and, and I believe deeply in that. And so when I see people, I don't see unimportant people. I see people, and I see people who are struggling with various aspects of life, given wherever they are at that moment in time. But the fact that someone doesn't have an education, or someone is less economically well-off, doesn't mean that they're not important. It means that those are the circumstances of their reality, But it doesn't diminish their importance as human beings, which is where I always start. Meeting people where they are, right? And 
So to expand on that, what life lesson should people not be afraid of and instead embrace, walk toward? I think the thing is never be afraid to make mistakes. The only way you cannot make mistakes is not to do anything. <laughs> and so in my view of the world, you're not, none of us are perfect. So no, so, so no matter what it is we do, there's the potential of mistakes. I made a zillion mistakes in my life, but I'm never going to like let the possibility of being in error stop you from pushing forward or never let I forgot that terminology about never letting the perfect be the enemy of the good, right? So you're, you're, you just got to recognize that no matter how smart you are, no matter what it is you think about yourself, you're not infallible. And you're going to make errors. You're going to make errors in judgment. You're going to make errors in things that you do. But what I try to do is to take the weight for every decision that I make. And so I'm not going to run from mistakes that I've made. I'm not going to run from things that I've done in my life that others, including myself, might consider negative because they all define who it is that I am. And I'm never going to not embrace who I am, the good and the bad, because that, that to me is what you should do. You know, you, you do what you do at the moment that you do it, but you do it understanding you're willing to take the weight for whatever decision it is that you've made. So you you've talked about the fact that you are you like to meet people where they are. We're talking about your students as well. How do you get them to understand that it's okay to make mistakes? We learn from our mistakes. I don't know that you can other than talking to people. I mean, but you also can model it. You can use your own life lessons. Look, I did this. Here's what I learned from it. I did this. Here's what I learned from it. Because, you know, like when you're talking to people or even when we're doing this podcast, you don't, you don't know what people are going to hear in terms of what I said. I mean, because two people could sit there, hear exactly what I'm saying and walk away with two different interpretations of what I said. And so all you can do is say what you got to say. All you can do is to try to make it as clear as you can. Because I actually believe that anything that I know, I can explain it to you, right? And that, and if you tell me you don't understand it, I don't assume that that's your problem. I assume that I got to figure out a better way to explain it to you, right? That's just the way that I feel. Because I feel like if I can come up with a way to explain it to you, you can understand it, right? And the fact you don't understand it is not on you. It's on me to come up with a different way to say it. But once I say it to you, I'm not going to assume that because I said it, you either agreed with it, understood it, and but all I can do is to tell you that. So all I can do to some kids is say, look, here's what I've learned. Right. Or but I can't be sanguine that all because you said it, they're going to get it or that they're necessarily even going to use these lessons. Because if you have children, I mean, you're always trying to tell your kids, but you don't you don't know that those lessons are going to be internalized. It's just like I think about all the lessons I've learned from my mother, and my grandmother that have guided me throughout my life. 
But when they were telling it to me, I, mean, I don't, I wasn't sitting there saying, oh, wow, this is really fantastic, right? And many times I was like, oh, man, I'm not trying to hear that. And, but, it's, but it's then later in life that you realize that what they said was real. And, and, and so that's why I think even though you're talking to a group of kids, you got to always do the best that you can because you don't know what your words are going to mean. I've, I've said it over and over again. I heard Malcolm X give the speech ballot in the bullet, ballot or the bullet. I was at Corey Methodist Church when he gave that speech. That speech changed my entire life, right? So whenever I speak, I always, like, am trying to give the best that I can give because I don't know who's listening to me, and I don't know what impact my words are going to have on their life because I experienced that. I know that words can impact people's lives. It can change the way they think. And so I always try to be respectful of that reality and do the best that I can to explain stuff to people, understanding that they may get it, they may not. But my responsibility is to do the best that I can. Also, additionally, what word would you love to do away with forever? (laughs) <laughs> you know what? It's not the words that I would want to do away with. It's, it's what's behind the words. But since you push me, like all this diversity and it, it, what is it? DEI, diversity, inclusion. What else is it? Equity, diversity, equity, equity okay. inclusion. The first thing is most people using those words don't know what they even mean. So, for example, there are people out there who still equate equity with equality. They're not the same things, but yet you're out here talking like they're the same things. And diversity, equity, and inclusion don't mean nothing in the absence of power. And so we got all these terms where, okay, now you have a diverse room. Oh, you know, you, you, you got women in the room. You, you got black people in the room. You got Latin people in the room. You got Asian people in the room. Oh, look at this room. The question is, is there any power in that room? And who has the power? So to me, some of these terms are hollow because they don't get to the essence of what it takes in order for whatever ideas you have to move something forward, right? And so, I I mean, I understand it. And I get every generation develops its words and its terminology and and all of that. But what I would urge people to do, though, is to make sure that you, first of all, you understand what these words mean. And number two, that you don't let these words become the reality. The reality is what happens by virtue of using those words. Does it change anything? Because you can sit there and say, oh, we're really big on DEI. Okay, that's good. Tell me how it changed the power relationships in the organization that you're in. Don't tell me that it changed the the color or the gender. Tell me how it changed the power. Because if it doesn't change the power, in my opinion, it's useless. So one of the questions I was going to ask you is how our listeners can actionize what they've heard from you today. How do people change the power? Well, you can only change the power by changing the power. I know that's kind of stupid to say, but here's what I mean. 
If you invite me to a meeting and you invite me to the meeting because I'm black, that's cool. But when we're in the meeting and we're talking about we want to have this policy in operation instead of this one, is my blackness a critical factor in changing the nature of that policy? And if we change the nature of that policy, is something different going to happen? So, for example, if the policy is one that prevents us or has stopped us from hiring people of color or black or brown people, whatever, when we change the policy, is the hiring practices going to change? Or are we just changing the wording? But if I come back 10 years later, there's really no significant alteration in the reality, right? So I'm all about, tell me how reality changes. Tell me how someone who was not in power is now in power, but it's not just individual power. It's power that will have an impact on a larger community of people. So for example, just putting a black face in what used to be a high white place in and of itself doesn't mean anything to me. The only reason it's going to mean something is other than you individually being there, is it now going to change the reality for people who have no power? Is it going to change? The, you know, my being the superintendent was all interesting, but if I didn't, while I was in that position, try to change something for the kids, try to change funding, try to change, then it doesn't mean anything. And so what I'm trying to argue for here is, yes, it's important to have black people in charge. Yes, it's important to have women in charge. Yes, it's important to have Native Americans in charge. But it's only important if they get there. And by virtue of them being there, it changes something for the communities that they're supposed to represent. Otherwise, it's just something that happens for an individual. And I'm hearing you say we all have a lot of work to do. Well, look, Francis Nunn wrote a book called Wretched of the Earth. And in this book, he said, every generation out of relative obscurity must discover its mission and either fulfill it or betray it. Every generation has challenges. Every generation has challenges. The question is, how do you step up to that challenge at your moment in time? How do, what, what do you do at your moment in time? And for me, it isn't what is it that you do to create a better position for yourself. It is what is, what is it that you do to create a better position for the community that you come from? And, and I always talk about, I want people to do well and do good, right? Because I want the children at our school to do well. I, I want them to have a house. I want them to have a car. I want, I want them to be able to, to, to travel around the world. I want them to do good individually or do well individually, but I also want them to come back and do good. And what I'm trying to say to young people is success is not leaving the place that you came from. Success is leaving the place that you came from and then coming back to that place and making a significant difference. You lifted one of my favorite thoughts, do well and do good. I'd love to leave our listeners on that note. It has been a true privilege and honor to be with you here, Dr. Fuller, today. Any last words? Oh, no, just uh, 
thank you for inviting me back. I, I mean, I, I really uh, deeply appreciate it. And I just wish all the people out there who are actually trying to make change in our community, I wish you well. And it's not a sprint. <laughs> it is a marathon, but you have to approach it as if it is a sprint. It's like, I believe that even though you accept something lesser as a compromise, you should always begin with the highest level of change that you can possibly think of. Because if you don't begin with the highest level of change, the compromise that you make is likely to be much lower than it would have been if you didn't go into it with a more radical agenda. And now we circle back to being unbought, don't we? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> All right, great. Dr. Fuller, thank you so much. It was a true privilege. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Leadership is in Session, powered by Athena Communications. Be sure to catch all eight enlightening episodes. And don't forget to connect to On the Edge of Equity with Tammy Belton Davis, available wherever you get your podcasts.